Okay, my professional day is spent solving problems. That's all I do, all day long. People come to me with their problems, and I gotta figure out their shit. The last two episodes, there have been problems that have needed to be figured out. Do you think that my own deductive reasoning, that my own talents could have been put to work for my own show? No. No. No, they were not. I turned into a crying little toddler. I (laughs) could not figure things out. Turned into the very kind of person who I shake my head at and try to say, it'll be okay. We'll get through this. We'll figure out the problems. I needed a me for me was what it was. I couldn't be my own me. But being being me, uh, your me, uh, I have a role that's somewhat similar in many ways in that people come to you to solve problems. You need to know when you need additional help as well. I can't answer your questions, but I know how to get answers to your questions. And that sometimes means going to other people. Right, but that's the thing. I should have known. I don't know this, but I know how to look it up. I forgot all of that. Like you you heard me trying to explain this off the beginning of the show. Think about just me trying to articulate it and then put it into how do I – wait, what do I do here? I, I, You know, like I forgot – I would hate to be the support person on the other side of hearing you go. So like, would I. I've got this, I've, oh. Guys, it's broken. <laughs> Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 294 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast on my movie loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Today, we will be talking about a film where. Being wrong is at the center of the story, and conflict has become a topic that is growing more and more in my mind with every passing day. I mean, take this show. It's very seldom that my guests and I happen to vehemently disagree on a film up for discussion, which isn't by design, it's just a fluke on how the chips happen to fall when I choose the film and the guest. Now, does disagreeing on the film make for a more entertaining show? Potentially. Does it make for a constructive conversation? Well, no, not always. That, of course, trickles over into how we live our lives and conduct ourselves. It is easier to respond to a beef just by closing things off with the offending party. Certainly it is. And sometimes that is, in fact, the wise choice. But not always. And not even as often as we may think. Take today's guest. He and I have disagreed often over the years. Often. times. And, and we'll again here, I'm certain of it. And yet here we still are because we are able to mend fences, build bridges and find common ground. He is a longtime friend of the show. So long. He's actually family at the stage. Bob Turnbull is here. How are you, man? I'm doing very, very well, sir. And you, I'll give you time. I have, I have my pint. Yes. This pint I is uh, provided by a friend of the show and also family of the show, James McNally. James, thank you for leaving a can of Guinness in my hey, fridge. Thank you, sir. Last time you, last time you were here. Um, I'm glad to hear you're well, buddy, and I am as well. On episode 294, we will be discussing the Banshees of Inishirin. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more, and I do mean more, about Bob. This is Know Your Enemy. All right, good people. I hope you're ready. We have arrived at our first nine timer. You've been here mo- way more often than that, but as far as rounds of know your enemy are concerned, you have been here nine times now. 
So we had to invent a new round of questions. First, though, get comfy. Oh, Here Do we go. Speed run, please. All Do right. <laughs> Bob first appeared on a Hot Docs episode. We learned the first film he ever saw in a theater was Sleeping Beauty. The last film he saw at the time was fine, totally fine. The worst film he's ever seen is Shark Attack Megalodon. The unseen classic or essential is Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Bob's seen it. The films he wished he made was Airplane and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. On episode 32, we talked about Duncan Jones' source code. We learned the film Bob digs, but nobody else does, is Ocean's 12. The film everybody else likes, but he does not, is True Romance. The last film to make him cry was Dear Zachary. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Anthony Edwards. And the film he was watching next was The Outlaw Josie Wales. Next was episode 83. We talked about Upstream Color. We have talked about some great films on this show, by the way. We learned the movie that made his love of film turn a corner was Raising Arizona. His first date movie with his wife was A Kiss Before Dying. His sick day movie is Magnolia. The last film to leave us speechless was At Any Price, Cafe de Flor, and Cold Fish. And his epitaph from Raising Arizona would be So Many Social Engagements, So Little Time. On episode 130, we talked about a most violent year. The film he really digs but never wants to see again is More to End of History. The last films to genuinely freak him out were Juwan and Dear Zachary for differing reasons. The film that always makes him laugh are Anchorman, Airplane, and Raising Arizona. His favorite movie soundtrack is Soul Kitchen and Only Human. And the film he loves but seemingly nobody else has heard of is Only Human. By the way, Bob, if you mention Raising Arizona in this podcast, I don't think you're going to be coming back for a tenth time. On episode 244, we talk... You're going to mention Raising Arizona, aren't you? No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually going to try and pull back some of my common answers, but it's always a good time to mention Raising Arizona. Man. Is it really? On episode 244, we talked about I'm thinking of ending things. We learned that when he goes to the cinema, he likes to sit a few rows up on the aisle. If he could go on a date with any movie character, he would choose Maggie Chung from Irma Vep. The dirtiest film he's ever seen are In the Realm of the Senses and Cold Fish. His favorite black and white movie is The Night of the Hunter, and the film he likes but nobody would expect him to like is The Aristocrats. Then we got back in order. We Bob's answers kind of got out of order for a minute there. On episode 138, we talked about Chloe Jaws the Rider. We learned at home or in a theater, his movie snack of choice is Diet Cola. Uh, the movie world he would like to spend a day in are Real Genius, Animal House, and Everybody Wants Some if he wanted to go back to college, or Gentle Breeze in a Village, or Only Yesterday if he wanted to go to Japan. His favorite good scene in a bad movie is the farmhouse shootout in Manhunt, or the dance sequences in Sweet Charity. The most violent movie he's ever seen is The World of Kamako, and the movie monologue he'd like to deliver is the Mad as Hell speech from Network. On episode 222, we talked about High Life. We learned that if Bob met a person who had never seen a film before, he would show them 12 Angry Men. The movie that best embodies his personality is Afterlife. The movie he hated on first watch but eventually would come to enjoy is Fanny and Alexander. The remake or adaptation that is better than its source material, in Bob's opinion, is Ocean's Eleven. And if he could bring any artist back from the dead, he would bring back Agnes Varda to make more Agnes Varda movies. Finally, last fall, we talked about Belfast on episode 273. We learned that if Bob could sit down to any cinematic meal, he would choose either Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, or Tempopo. The movie that always reminds him of home is Wetlands. The random movie line that he quotes often is from Raising Arizona. Sometimes it's hard world for little things. And also from Airplane, I am serious and don't call me Shirley. 
His all-time favorite twist ending is stories we tell. And when he has to go, he wants to go the way of Spock in Wrath of Khan. That is his movie death of choice. Round nine. Bob Turnbull, this is an inverse of one of the questions you have already answered. And to set the stage, this could be a matter of taste, a matter of growth, a matter of politics. Um, There are all kinds of reasons for this answer. What is a film that at first you loved, but now you don't? Yeah, that's that's a tough one because you're right. It could come from a number of different angles. Um, But I think where most people end up is movies they saw as a kid that they loved, that they've put off rewatching for a long time. Because they don't want to ruin that memory, yeah. And I don't think you can ruin the memories. I I, I think you might actually be uh, selling yourself short and missing out on re-enjoying a movie again. Even if you hate it, you still have that memory. But one of those that I saw a few years ago again when uh, I bought it on DVD, I was like, oh, it's on DVD. This is great. Was Gumball Rally from 1976? This was pre-Cannonball Run. It came out the same year as the movie Cannonball, which is. Also, a movie about an illegal cross-country race. Crazy antics follow with cars swerving off the road and crashing into each other. It's not good. It's just, it's just it's not good. Uh, you know, stars Michael Sarazen and Raul Julia. Gary Busey's in there in an early role. Um, the cars are awesome. You know, there's a Porsche and a Ferrari. Uh, gorgeous-looking cars. It's kind of boring. And it's extraordinarily chauvinistic, even for its time in the 70s. And, you know, I I remember loving it as a kid. Like, oh, cars driving across the country. Yeah, it's not good. A wealthy but bored businessman and candy maker issues the code word gumball to his fellow automobile enthusiasts in a garage in New York City to embark on a coast-to-coast race with no catalytic converter and no 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. In the shortest amount of time, there is only one rule. There are no rules. Gee, Bob, (laughs) why why don't you like it anymore? (laughs) It's just so much more boring than you think it should be, that awesome description. See, here's the funny thing. So first of all, I I, I totally understand why, because it probably seemed like something that you saw at the impressionable age. You, You hadn't seen a lot of movies that probably did a lot of this better um i'm sure you didn't see a lot of movies that did a lot of this worse um but you're right like uh, you know you were primed to enjoy it at the age that you did and you look back at it now it's like oh man this is this really isn't this really isn't that good of a movie but i mean the funny thing is i bet you five bucks like this is the kind of movie where you will hear um enthusiasts talk about like showing it at 10 o'clock on a friday night in a crowded room full of sure you know, well liquored, probably dudes, and it plays. You know, I think this is this is where I'm going. Is is the film by itself? At one point, you enjoyed it. You had fun. You you know, it it, it was one of those. Yeah, it's so cool. And now you look at it in the harsh light of day. It's like, yeah, you know, maybe it's not that good. It, w- watch the trailer if you can. And it, the movie is probably worse than the trailer, but the trailer will give you an idea. <laughs> Gotcha. It's just that it is rather dull in many, many spots. Bob, uh, back to a music question for you, and please try to contain your answer to one. I will explain this just in case anybody listening to the show happens not to know what I'm talking about. What is your favorite needle drop? And the needle drop is the soundtrack moment where somebody does something and the song kicks in. 
Uh, yeah, so that that's what I was trying to focus on is not best use of music, you know, like Wise Up in Magnolia or, or something like that. Um, I was looking for that moment. Not not to cloud your answer, but if you had said Wise Up, I, I would have I would have okay taken that. that. I, yeah. I, I I love the song. I love the way it's used in the movie. But I I was trying to think of that, like you said, that needle drop. Boom! Right. The song starts and ah, yeah, you get yeah, something. Okay. Adventureland has a bunch of those kind of scenes with breaking lava with Jewish priests. The end credits don't change. I just love. School of Rock when Immigrant Song kicks in, Sweet Emotion during Days of Confused, a lot of that classic rock stuff used wonderfully well. But I landed on High Fidelity because I was, you know, thinking about movies that really incorporate a lot of music for reasons, you know, because there's music in the movie, the characters live and breathe it. Go and it's on. Really the last song in the movie. Um, ah. uh, I, I, uh, I believe when I fall in love, it will be forever by Stevie Wonder. That's the full like title of it because he's just talking about how he's now learned to make a mixtape for his girlfriend with songs that she'll like and he's just you know he just snaps the headphones on and as soon as he presses record you can hear the song in the background he hits record and boom volume comes up and it hits the chorus and it's it's just kind of this perfect moment as then plays over those kind of nice shiny kind of credits and it just also captured the song kind of like i i knew the song not that well and suddenly i just absolutely love that song I thought it was a great way to end that movie with such a fantastic tune. First of all, you will get no arguments out of me about just about anything to do with high fidelity. Uh, That's a movie near and dear to my heart uh, for all kinds of reasons. And while it still fits within Rob Gordon's character, it pulls a little bit more towards, I wouldn't say saccharine, but it pulls more towards the sweet, you know, it's not quite, it's not as, as cool of a song as some of the other ones that he's been lobbing around for two hours. And um, like you say, like the lyrical choice in that moment, uh, because he's been talking about how he's been done so wrong by all of these girls for all of his life. And never in any of those moments did he actually really fall in love. Like he always fell in like, and he always really crushed hard on a lot of these on all of these women um including potentially his partner uh mm-hmm. now that i think about it but he never really fully and truly fell in love you know so having that moment having stevie express that as as only stevie can as the as the final cathartic moment in this you know 2 hours of musical idiocy and and male oh, idiocy it's that. it's a it's a great send off for sure i I love the record store scenes too and and we won't go too much into the film but even just when it's panning along the racks of albums i keep looking like oh i've got that king crimson album oh i've got that one too like you you can't help but do that kind of stuff we did do an episode about high fidelity uh for a birthday show years ago um it's in the archives i'll put it in the show notes if anybody wants to hear me talk about high fidelity for uh, 90 minutes or so it was a pretty good show oh this is uh well timed considering that this show is going to debut on halloween bob turnbull what is your favorite monster movie? Another one that I was sort of thinking a lot about because it's not my favorite movie monster. It's no. the full, you know, what's my favorite monster movie? It was my favorite movie monster. I'd be thinking some of the kaiju, like Japanese monster films, the Godzilla-ish ones, like uh, mm-hmm. even something like uh, Destroy All Monsters, which has got this this whole uh, penelope of different monsters, like Mothra and Radon and Goth- uh, Godzilla are all in it. It's great. Or Space Amoeba. Or even Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Not a good movie, but those things are just, they're interesting and very memorable. But sure. if I'm thinking 
um, you know, monster movies, the Japanese ghost, the, the, the black haired woman, female ghost in many Japanese movies, going all the way back to like Kuroneko and, and so forth, but primarily in Juon the Grudge. Because I think it's so effective. It is, it is that movie that makes me curl up into a ball without me even really realizing it. Even though it can be very, very silly, it's creepy, it's effective. Both the woman ghost in her long hair and that little pale-faced boy who, who sounds like, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of sound. It's creepy as hell. And I think they count as monsters. Uh, absolutely. So first of all, again, you're talking near and dear to my heart because uh, Juon the Grudge was my very, very first Midnight Madness experience at Toronto oh, International nice. Film Festival. Oh, that would have been amazing. It was. like It was my first time being in an audience and hearing them cheer. There's a scene where the woman gets into the elevator and... Uh, the doors close and the camera 180s and you can see the boy looking in the elevator window then the elevator starts going up and every floor has a window and as the elevator is going up at every floor the boy is looking in the window and it was this thing where first of all the crowd like they all went oh when, when the boy first looks in the window and then as the elevator is going up the cheers like rose and rose and rose that, that dark haired presence it's so oh it's so affecting, you know, like it's, it's genuinely scary. I think I got to give you that for a favorite monster movie, that type of presence is really, really freaky. I mean, the, the classic monsters, I mean, yeah, they're, they're kind of scary. Uh, it, and, and they usually make the most out of, out of what they are and what they do. Um, but a lot of seeing a lot of those movies like the grudge and the ring and that kind of, oeuvre um the actual evil is really really disquieting and it sits with you it stays with at least with me anyway just yeah it hangs around yeah i love it again a play on one of the previous questions but this is something that i like to ask movie lovers for any rhyme or reason what is a movie scene that lives in your head rent free so this is where I could have easily gone to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind for numerous scenes. But I, I think I've talked about at least one or two of those before at length in, yeah. at some point in one of the podcasts. So I'll skip over that. The answer here actually dovetails very nicely into what we were just talking about. But a different Japanese film from 2000, 2001, uh, Pulse, or Cairo, as it's called, which I think was also at Midnight Madness. I would have okay. loved to have seen it there. It's a much slower, darker, grimier kind of uh, horror film, very existential. But the scene that has clawed its way into my memory and has stayed with me and will always stay with me is the one in the room with the red tape around it where the, the young man goes in, starts looking around, there's nothing in there. And then suddenly you hear this ethereal kind of sounds. Camera flips back to where he just came in. And as the sound drops out completely, you see a female presence just there. And then she starts walking in the creepiest slow motion fashion ever until her leg buckles at this weird moment. And she drops down into this almost kind of spider-like thing, stabilizes herself, stands back up and continues to walk toward him in this slow motion, but unstoppable fashion. It's this absolutely, I think, brilliant, creepy, unsettling scene that, I show to people all the time out of context. And I try not to do that. You know, <laughs> maybe, 
But this scene alone is just kind of like, this is one of the reasons why I love a good horror movie and specifically good Japanese horror as well. People by now have probably put together, you you have a specific taste when it comes to film. I mean, you, you as, a, as a, one of the things I like about you is you actually like, like all, you like all kinds of things. Like you, you kind of, you bring, you, you bring it back to a familiar place, but that's, that's fine. You like all kinds of things. So um, when I, hatched this particular question i kind of foresaw the question as what is a happy place like what is something that you will think of you know if you're no 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 no, but i like that you went to to something dark now so is it it lives there because in that like that is a moment of just pure execution and craft and you know you know in a weird way like creepy joy yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I guess to a certain extent, it's it's, uh, it's not living there rent free. It's squatting. It's kind of squatting my memory. <laughs> but um, but I have. We've no called the cops a couple times. There is just no evicting it. I have no urge to push it out. I mean, I right. I love Kyoshi Kurosawa's filming, especially around that time period with Cure as well. It's mm-hmm. it's amazing how he frames things. He puts frames within frames. He uses the sound field. I could go on at length. I think about the way he he structures a film particularly those horror movies in that time period. Um, I think they're true works of art, and I'm happy for that one to sit there. And last but not least, kind of playing off the idea that every review ends with a souvenir, Bob Turnbull, if you could own any singular prop or costume from film history, what would you choose? This was a tough one because I was thinking I usually lean towards more of the full set design kind of thing like, mm. like think of some of the shallow movies and just the sure gorgeous colors and the the 70s architecture and furniture and weird placement of bathtubs and couches and stuff like that <laughs> or uh the, the the criminal's lair and danger diabolic like oh i'd love that that'd be awesome right. but right you, you were asking for objects so but i landed on a different horror film um phantasm from i think it was the early 80s and if you've seen it you probably know which thing i'm thinking of it's the little silver sphere that has that little sharp edge that pops out of it when it's flying around the kind of funeral home mausoleum uh, place. That's the the central part of the movie and, you know, uh, kills a couple of people. And the reason is I saw this movie with my brother years ago, late at night at home. I I don't know why this was playing on TV, but we watched it, had no idea what this was going to be. And then it was going to be some cheesy movie. And it was one of those that helped me get into horror movies because it was just so totally surprising and unexpected. And it was just cool, for lack of a better word. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't like the gore and all that. I don't necessarily care too much about that. I want that surprise, that kind of different realm, that different universe you bring me into, that dread. And as cheesy as the movie is in some ways, I thought that was extraordinarily effective. And imagine having that just perched on your desk at work. Somebody swings by, you press a little button. <laughs> A little little point pop out and you you throw it at their head that'll that'll keep you nice and safe in your little cubicle i have never seen phantasm see give it a shot i mean okay you, you've seen enough movies that you may kind of go okay well this is like an 80s movie um but there's a lot of interesting aspects to it a lot of unsettling things to it and a lot of surprises Okay. Uh, and I mean, yeah. like I'm, I'm looking at pictures and that does seem like a cool thing. Like you say, like to have on the desk, to have on the bookshelves behind you and you'd be like, Billy, let's talk, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> I like this idea, you know, and I, and I do like that again, kind of when I crafted this question, I was already thinking in my head that uh, going down the line as I get more and more people in for the ninth time, 
I'm going to have to penalty box things like the Maltese Falcon and the Ruby Slippers. But I, so I'm, I'm happy that right out of the shoot, you took it somewhere very different than, you know, those kinds of things or Indiana Jones hat or a lightsaber. So kudos to you, Mr. Turnbull. You well done. The first two you mentioned definitely came into mind, although I was yeah. thinking more of the Ruby shoes from the red shoes, but, but you're right. Ah, anything no, awesome. I wouldn't have thought of that. That, that, I w- that one I would have allowed. Um, there we go. That's number nine. I have no idea what in the world I'm going to ask for a 10th time. Um, if people have ideas, please send them because I'll just save them until I inevitably do need to trot them out. We have a film to talk about. I'm going to sort of declare a spoiler gong. I don't really feel like this is a film that can be spoiled because it is what it is. Uh, aside from one little thing that we will not discuss, a lot of it is very much predictable in terms of where it is going to go. And that is not a knock on it. That's actually a, a delivery on a promise. But consider yourself warned. We may get a little bit more spoilery than we tended to um, as we talk about the Banshees of Inishirin after this. The Banshees of Inishirin is written and directed by Martin McDonough. It stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Kerry Condon, and Barry Keoghan. The Banshees of Inishirin is about Pedrick and Colm. For many years, they have been good friends, chatting at length, sitting in the pub, having the sort of gently warm friendship that cordial men of a certain age do. But one day, that ends. Colm decides he doesn't like Pedrick anymore, not because of something he's said or done. He's just had enough. Few people can fully understand it. Not Siobhan, Pedrick's sister, who is his only family in the small Irish island. Not Dominic, a somewhat simple boy that counts everyone in town as someone he's close to, even if they don't necessarily. And yet, whether it is understood or not, it is the new normal in Inishirin. Colm doesn't like Pedrick anymore. And if he does not respect that, Colm will need to take matters into his own hands, literally, to prove his point. The granddaddy of all podcasts, Film Spotting, often likes to bring conversations back to one key element, the stakes. The medium of film is a form of storytelling after all, and what is a good story if not one that comes with stakes? When we look at a film like The Banshees of Inishirin, one could be pardoned if they thought the stakes were rather low or even non-existent. After all, it's a small town. These are two simple men. There's one pub, one church. How high could the stakes be? So pop quiz hotshot, where the Banshees of Inishirin is concerned, how high are the stakes? At the personal level, right at the top, right at the top of the charts, I think, um, it is more of that kind of personal movie. You're not talking the apocalypse of the planet, but it's it's more of an, an apocalypse of a community, of a set of relationships, and how those can get out of control in many, in many kind of ways. Um, I don't want to extend the metaphor too far, but yeah, I think the stakes are very, very relevant here, particularly not just in the relationship, but in your view of yourself and how you conduct yourself. And are you proud of the way you do that? And are you upholding your long held beliefs? Are you changing just to shift to somebody else's view? Or are you actually slowly changing because you are learning? And I think there's a lot of things wrapped up in there, but I I think a lot of it gets to how do you view yourself and are um, are you able to live with that? I agree. I think the the stakes in this movie on a personal level are extremely high. The thing about a town like Inishirin is that not a lot changes. And at one point, Siobhan even actually 
brings that to Calm's attention. She's like, what do you want in a town like this? Like, what are you even looking for? It's the kind of place where you've known everybody since you were a kid and you're going to know them when they die because not a lot of people leave, not a lot of new people show up. So any little change to the status quo has this huge ripple effect, you know? Like if you stop going to the pub, that's, you know, another five quid a night that they're not going to get and that could actually affect they're, they're till, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. while you're right, it's not like a universe is going to implode if these two men don't share a pint every day at two o'clock. For at least one of them, their entire world order is about to get turned upside down. And I think what the film does so very well is makes us feel that, you know, like it does it in so many ways. It makes us feel that in desperation. It makes us feel that in, with humor, it makes us feel that with pathos, and it leads us to understand just what it means for uh, Pedrick that Colm doesn't want to be his friend anymore for no reason. You know, like that's, I think that's the beauty of it is that they come back over and over to, but what did I do? And he goes, nothing. It's just the place that I've come to. Yeah, something there, there are reasons for, but they're not like you said. Th- there isn't a specific one single thing that he can point to. Right. It's over time, and it's how he's now viewing things. For whatever reason, he got to this place in his life, and he's like, "I don't want to be friends with you anymore because I don't like you. I don't have time for you. Uh, I don't have time for your dullness." Essentially, is what he's saying uh, about the character, and it, it's just so interesting to see how the movie even plays with your allegiance to some of these characters as to. Yeah, he is kind of dull, and I kind of get why he needs to avoid that. And then you sort of start, well, no, actually, maybe, you know, Colm isn't exactly as nice a guy as I may have thought of initially. And and it flips back and forth. And I, I think for me, one of the central scenes was one of, um, I guess, Patrick's first kind of drunken kind of uh, confrontation with Colm in the pub. Mm-hmm. And I really love how that played out. For me, that's that's kind of the crux of the movie there in many ways, is it, it's it's funny dark it's also really kind of sad but it's it's true like he was very true to his character as he's talking to him it, it wasn't one of those kind of drunken suddenly violent outburst things where there's fighting it didn't devolve into your standard expectation of how that confrontation might go yeah he was actually being very introspective and he was actually pretty insightful too in how he viewed colm and i think even colm at the end of it i think colm's like I think I might actually like him a little bit more now. (laughs) (laughs) That I feel is for for me, the moment that the movie really escalated because I mean, listen, this movie, it very, very easily could have been grumpy old men. You know, it very easily could have been here's two simple Irish louts that just want to out dick each other, you know, as to who can be the bigger dick, regardless of who started it. And that is not what this movie is. This movie, I mean, the, this conflict comes from a place of love. It comes from a place of existentialism. It's a really nuanced and complicated disagreement between these two simpletons, really. One of them is, is slightly less of a simpleton than the other, but the, you know, they're not exactly Rhodes scholars. Um, but just it, it's, a, it's a really, really well-constructed um, crisis that has affected this whole town. I, I love the fact that you brought up the word existential. I mean, that, that comes, 
that comes up way too often in some discussions, but it is so appropriate in this case. I think it's one of those movies where like, no, you have to use the word existential when talking about this movie because it does really come to you thinking about why am I here? What is my place here? What what does what I do matter? Should it matter? What should I achieve in my life? You know, all, all those things really sort of come up as you're watching this movie. And there's some different approaches to that by some of the different characters here. It's, it is funny. It is dark. It is sad. It's a Mark Medina movie. So it's going to have all those things in it. This is probably, I think, his strongest film since In Bruges, partially because of Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson being phenomenally great together and just separately great actors. But because he he's, I think McDonough's changing it up a bit. His previous movies all had these really weird tendrils that he went off on, these additional characters, sometimes really for great reasons and for funny reasons. Yeah. Here it's a lot more focused. There's other characters, but it's really focused on the island, on the isolation, on these two gents with some other characters similarly kind of thinking about how they can move their lives forward and whether they should and how should they do that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that is what McDonough does really well, is along with writing things that are really funny. There are some moments in this movie that are absurd. There's some moments in this movie that are horrific. Um, there are some moments in this movie that are dead, genuinely sad. Uh, so Some genuine oh shit moments. But he has this way of writing where repetition becomes part of the part of the running gag like so we begin this movie with easily a good five minutes dedicated to multiple people asking um you know, I know exactly what you're gonna say yeah, asking Pedrick, are you rowing and he's like i don't think we are you know and to anybody who doesn't speak the lingo are you fighting are you arguing are you bickering but I love that he, you know, that they use "Are you rowing?" Um, this movie is set in the past. It's set around the uh, the early 1920s in, in this small Irish village. But I just love that over and over, his sister, the the boys at the pub, Dominic, the the guy played by Barry Keoghan, "Are you rowing?" I don't think we're rowing. Are you sure you're not rowing? You know, and just over and over, like it's it the yeah, first time side by side. Are you rowing? Yeah. Are yeah. you rowing? Yeah. Am I rowing? I don't know. Yeah. Am I rowing? It's I think great. It, it, in anybody else's hands, it could feel it could feel silly and repetitious, but here it feels like just finely crafted opera. Um, you're and right. Like there's you're, a pace to it too, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Aaron Sorkin has been accused of doing that too in West Wing and other things, and sometimes I think it's effective. Sometimes he pushes it. Here it really does feel natural in the way they say these things. And kind of either repeating it or restating it. Um, so there, there's a lot to do with not just the writing, but I guess his directing of the actors and how the actors relate that back. Little pauses, additional kind of moments of quiet where you can see they're thinking, and then they just say the same thing back. Yeah. it's. I think it's handled really, really well. It is. Um, Colin Farrell is acting his butt off in this movie. Farrell's kind of got an interesting arc. Like when he first showed up, he kind of seemed like he was just going to be another pretty boy actor like he was taking these very pop kind of parts and i'm thinking about stuff like phone booth and uh swat and the recruit and those kinds of things he miami really vice. my well miami voice i mean miami vice is kind of where it's 
you know that, that I kind of feel like that's where a lot of people tapped out. Yeah, we could it, have a whole it, other show. It, it it did seem to be like okay, he's going for those flashy kind of characters. Yeah, yeah, and yet he has evolved over the course of his career into um, something much more interesting. Like in this movie, he he plays very sad, uh, kind of pathetic, a little bit dopey, but at the same time, not a simpleton. Um, you know, like that he's got Barry Keoghan for that. <laughs> he's acting his butt off. And, you know, to there's a clip that's online right now, which I'll include in the show notes, that is, it's the clip where we first learn what's going on. And, you know, Colm says to him, no, you didn't say anything to me. You didn't do anything to me. There's, there's nothing to apologize for. Patrick, he smiles. He's like, he's happy. Okay, I didn't do anything bad. He's like, I just don't like you. And... <laughs> You watch his face fall. You can almost see his heart break. You know, he's got these big hangdog eyes. He's got those eyebrows. Farrell in this movie is, I mean, we we saw him do something different, but in a similar vein within Bruges. Um, it's it's such a good performance. But it, it's funny because he, he is, you know, not, not a, uh, a classic simpleton, but he's a very simple man. But he's he's kind of happy at the start of the movie. He's he's a simple man, but he's happy with that because he he doesn't think. They even say at one point, you know, you're, he's not much of a thinker. Here's what I think, but he doesn't really explore things. Right. So he just deals with what's in front of him, and he's he's happy with that for the most part. But then, yeah, then there's that blood draining, kind of heartbreaking moment of, but but I'm, but I don't, I'm not liked. I'm thought to be dull. And that changes his perspective as to who he is. And I think he keeps trying to bring it back to where he was. So it's interesting to see his trajectory throughout this movie that he, he ends up in a different space, right? Without saying too much more about that, he's a different person at the end of the movie. And he's not as happy. He's nowhere near as happy. And I think that's one of those kind of questions that you have to kind of wrestle with. Is it, is it, to a certain extent, better to not question things and be happy? Or is it good to have all the information in front of you and deal with it, yeah. uh, whether you like it or not? Uh, and that's not the central question. I think there's a lot of ways of framing some of these different journeys, but that's certainly one way of looking at it. So then on the other side of things, we have Brendan Gleeson. Calm's decision is kind of make or break for this movie because you have to understand it and you have to empathize with it, even if you don't necessarily agree with it. And I think that that is kind of key to the whole story is – Anybody who Colm talks to, they get it. Like, you know, to hear him say he's dull. Nobody has an argument to that. Nobody, nobody's like, oh, come on. He's not that dull. It's like, yeah, right. It reminds me a lot of Before Midnight, where in order for that movie to work, both the both sides of the couple have to have a point. Because if one of them is just wailing on the other, it becomes, you know, just nothing but contradiction. And right. Brendan Gleeson's again, to use that word existentialism in this movie uh, about how he's of a certain age and starting to think about how much time he has left, how much time any of them have left. You know, he he says to Pedrick, in 50 years, nobody is going to remember you and nobody's going to remember me. If we create things, if we leave them, if we write, if we have poetry, if we have music, that has a chance of outliving us. And I want to dedicate myself to that and you are holding me back. I mean, it's cold, but at the same time, it's not entirely mean. Yeah, that that's the way he feels. But it, it's interesting too when uh, when he's confessing to the priest, 
Um, and I think there's the, the two main confessions. And the first one, he's just started to separate himself from, from Pedrick. And the priest says, how's the despair? Mm -hmm. And like, oh, it's better. Because he's now focusing on what he wants to do. For whatever reason, he wants to leave that mark. You know, believe what you will, whether you need to leave a mark or if you want to or you should. He wants to. And now he's happier because he's doing that. And the second one, because of events in the movie, he's like, yeah, it's it's back. The despair is back. Yeah. So it, it's kind of interesting, whereas it's almost a, not a flip, but, you know, for, for Pedrick, his despair is after Colm starts getting happier. Because they've got these almost kind of competing desires for what they want out of life. Yeah. But and it's interesting to see that how desperate Colm is to leave that mark, to make sure he is remembered and the effects that that then has, you know, in, in many different kind of ways. I mean, I think what this film does really, really well is that it doesn't advocate for either one of them. It doesn't advocate for legacy, for leaving something behind. Like there's the, the old saying that the only thing we can truly leave behind is art and children. Um, it doesn't really say that that is what one should do with their life. You know, it, 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 it maps out an argument as to that being the decision or a decision or, or, or something noble, but it doesn't press the issue. And at the same time, it doesn't really dispute that being nice and being kind and being sweet and being a good friend is not enough, you know, cause that's the thing is that there, there is a, there is a minor argument about how, absolutely no one remembers nice people from the 17th century but everyone to a man remembers mozart and i you know i feel like this movie is saying there is a place for both you know i that's i think what this movie's real genius is beyond just it being a smarter version of grumpy old men is that this crisis that it builds with huge stakes as we've discussed um with both men acting their asses off is one where you can really theoretically align yourself with either or both of the men. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's the different worldviews. And, and I love the fact that you mentioned that the movie doesn't tell you which is the right way to think, or even that it's somewhere in the middle. It, it is, there is, there isn't any closure at the end. No. Uh, it, for, for the, for these two very changed men at that point, they, both of them are changed at the end of the movie, but it's not, it's not closed. It's not done. It's not finished. It doesn't wrap up nicely. Uh, I think some of the negative reviews I've read, I read a few things, I think are on the, they didn't settle this. They didn't come to closure. It's like, yes, that's the point. That's, <laughs> that's the whole, <laughs> that's, 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 that's not a bug. Point. That's a feature. Um, exactly. you know, and, and it's, you know, I want to say that's why I enjoyed the movie, but I was very happy at the end of the movie that they didn't wrap it up in a neat bow. Yeah. In some ways I'd like to see good things happen to good people, but, it would have been such a disservice to this movie and all the different things that they were talking about here. I mean, what I what I enjoy about the movie too, along like all along the way, is that the the course of their relationship is not a straight line. It reminds me of uh, you know, take a drink for all of the references I'm making, all the all of the tangents that I'm taking in this review. Please take a drink. It reminds me of a song by Casey Musgraves uh, called "Justified," where she talks about a breakup. And it's like, if I need you for one night, but then I hate you the next morning, I'm still justified in that. And watching these two, there's a moment where Pedrick gets his ass kicked by the police officer and get, you know, like literally gets tossed into the gutter. 
And Colm is there to pick him up and dust him off and put him back in the cart and help him home. Doesn't mean they're friends now, but it means that he's human. You know, and same thing like you said before, when Pedrick goes off in the pub and he's he's had a few in him and he's like he's got some whiskey in him and now he's ranting, but he's not ranting like a madman. He's ranting in a way that makes sense. And Colm's like, I think I actually kind of like him now. You know, none of these moments are really because one or the other screwed up. It's actually more because one or the other made the other one feel something and they just can't process, normally calm, can't process. And the only thing they can do is just lash, right? Like that's that's what I love about this thing is that it it brings up the way a dispute is not just sometimes a dispute is escalation, 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 escalation. But other times it's like, weren't you guys just hanging out last night? You know, and that, that's the thing. Like, I saw you walking down the road after the cop beat his ass. What do you mean you're doing that to yourself today? And yet, that is justified. Yeah, these they're, they're humans, right? I mean, they're complex, flawed individuals. There's absolutely no doubt that every character in this movie is flawed in many ways. Just like you are and I am and <laughs> everybody else. And I, I think it, uh, I think it does a really good job in doing that. It, it's funny how you kind of mentioned too, because it makes me think of, of little boys in the schoolyard. They'll be like all fighting, Arr! and then suddenly a soccer ball rolls into the field, kind of like, oh, cool, you want to play soccer? Yeah, cool. Yeah. And they run off and they play. Uh, but yeah, certainly Pedrick really wrestles with a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah. He keeps trying to bring it back to the way it was. Yeah. There's a few scenes where where you know he, he he's saying a few things and you're like ah okay maybe Cole is accepting this change in him and then Pedrick is like oh okay he's accepting that now let's go back to the pub at 2 p.m i'll come pick you up and then you can see Cole like no yeah. <laughs> what i'm looking to get to i'm looking to change revolve or get to the point where i can leave that mark and the sameness of what you're trying to bring is not what i need want or can't handle yeah and it's it, it's different for Pedro because he's not there yet. He's not, he's not able to kind of see the, the possible changes in front of him. Like you feel um, as though on a, you know, if, if it was a person who had just a little bit more self-awareness or self-confidence or self something that they would be able to adjust to the new normal and Cole might bridge that gap. And you know, like when they're passing in the street, they'll be able to talk you know, and just have these little moments. That's the thing. It's Colm goes nuclear. It's like, we can't do this at all. And because of that, Pedro is like, no, but we have to. It's not like, you know, one of them could say, well, we can't do this as much. And Colm and, and Pedro could be like, or we can do it a little. You know, if one of them just dialed things down or dialed things up just this much, so much would be avoided. But yet, yep. we can't. Yep. And they don't. Um, in amongst all of this, we haven't yet talked about Siobhan. Um, this is Pedrick's sister. Um, she has a really, really beautiful subplot and an effect on the on the on the main um, plot played by uh, Carrie Condon in this movie. Um, I I loved everything she did because she is you know she she's a conscience for a lot of people. Um, she is, um, you know, a vessel for actually wanting more while the sun is still shining and not in an existential type of way. You know, she is the person who 
will reinforce some people, who will break the hearts of some people, who will call bullshit on some people. Oh, she she's fantastic. I mean, you said before, but you know, two guys acting their asses off, and they are. I, I think Brendan Gleeson is you know probably one of the best actors in the last thirty years. He's fantastic. But holy cow, um, her scenes. I would love to see her up for awards. I think she is absolutely phenomenal in this movie. Partially because of the character, but the way she portrays it mm-hmm. as well. And she gets awesome, great lines, and she doesn't take shit from people. You know, there's there's a lot to her. It's a complex character. She's got her own flaws. Uh, but she delivers some of the best lines in the movie. I mean, when <laughs> when Combs talking about how boring Pedrick is, and she, she basically goes, you're all fucking boring. Meaning all you <laughs> men on this island are boring. Yeah. And it's just the way she delivers it, too. It's kind of like, yeah, they don't see that. No. I mean, and saying, <laughs> you know, I mentioned it earlier how she talked, like she asks him, you know, he, he wants more from life. And she's like, you live in Inishirin. What more do you want? Like, what do you think is going to happen here? You listen to her talk about, uh, you know, like you listen to the, the the postmistress at the at the at the general store talk about news and what is really news, and when when the news, when the, the real scandalous news gets delivered, you're like, oh boy, there is nothing happening in this town. The way she deals with Dominic, I think, is another way to see it. Like you can tell she doesn't really like him. You know, and this is Barry Keoghan's uh, part. He's kind of a simpleton. He's also a little bit of a creeper, not in the worst way, but just in a they don't know better kind of way. You watch her embody this role that far too many women have had to embody throughout history where it's like you don't like them, but at the same time, you kind of pity them. So you, you, you can't close the door and say, go away, Dominic. But at the same time, you don't really want to encourage somebody like Dominic. You know, and she hits that nail squarely on the head. Um, oh, yeah. You know, she just she fills us with pathos. She breaks his heart and ours uh, for her, you know, and for him in that moment. Because you can see uh, in this moment where Dominic has a real moment of honesty in front of her that she does not really want to be honest in return. But she like you can just see the wheels spinning in her head, and she's like, "If I'm not honest now, I'm gonna have to be even more honest in a week, you know, or in a month, or in a year." And it's like this is that moment where I can be the most honest, the least cruel, and she just has to do the math real quick while he's standing a meter in front of her and looking her square in the eye. Yeah, and and it's it's more than you know like that she feels pity for him. She has empathy for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, she truly mm-hmm. really feels for him. That's why I say pathos, and, not pity, but she has yeah, pathos well, exactly, for him. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's 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 a wonderful characteristic that that she has. She just plays the role fabulously well. Mm-hmm. The, the the way she um, you know, she talks with that postmistress and just has absolute scorn for her, the way she you know, goes into the pub all happy about, I'm going to have a glass of sherry with my brother and then, you know, to be dashed. Just all those different aspects and how, you know, she's always telling him, the animals cannot be inside the house. <laughs> but, you know, then you have empathy for the animals too. It's kind of like, oh, but Jenny the donkey is just the cutest thing ever. Come on. That is a really fetching I, donkey, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, but back to Carrie Condon. I mean, I, I know her from Better Call Saul, which everybody acted their asses off in, in that show, and she was great. 
wow, I, I think she takes it to a, just another level here. And, and it's not a matter of the big scenes. It's the subtleties. And I think that's the key thing in all these characters and all these performances is these subtleties, the way they're changing, the way they're wrestling with change, um, the way they're wrestling with their lives there and the existential crises that they're all kind of facing at the same time is just wonderful. And you got to give McDonough credit for that because, I mean, he wrote it, but he also directed it. Too. Yeah. I expect he had very, very specific ways of them reacting uh, um, to certain situations. The, the niceness doesn't last. And I, I thought that was a really interesting and another key moment in the movie because I, I, I can't even, I can't help but relate that to even current kind of trends. And I'm not saying McDonough did this on purpose or anything. That's just my own kind of you know, view of it. Uh, about how you know kindness and, and being nice don't get clicks and it doesn't last and it's not the the currency yeah. of our times and you look at you know that postmistress and the cop you know they're not about being nice they're about reveling in how other people are kind of suffering or or having had things happen to them they want that gossip and that news uh, and it's just really kind of interesting to sort of see that perspective from you know hundred years ago mm -hmm. it was like was it 1923 or so yeah um and 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 seeing that and i don't think it was necessarily uh something that he purposely wanted to like yes i'm gonna relate to the to the current times and social media but it's just interesting how you can kind of you can actually take a lot of those things and place them to the current times even the uh the cop you know kind of saying how he really wants to go see an execution and he's talking about the one that he might go see. And he, he can't even remember, is, is it the Free State guys or is the IRA that's going to be executed? Ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think he's talking to Cole. He's kind of like, I don't even care if you're being executed. <laughs> I want to be there. I want to revel in somebody else's despair or pain or suffering because I don't have much else. I think and the movie does really way of, of bringing that forth. A really interesting job of that. I mean, and that kind of leads quite nicely into very distantly in the background we have the troubles going on you know and and this is after ireland has won its independence from england and is now fighting amongst itself um you know in the, in the 20s um and you know one of the characters says i miss when we were fighting the english because then at least you knew who we were fighting and why it's like why are we fighting again and then they're hearing cannon fire over across the bay if it, if it was mentioned one more time, it would go one metaphor too far in terms of, oh, this is an allegory for civil war and this is an allegory for, you know, familial disputes and this is important. Having that just be in the backdrop, you know, and having this town where nothing changes so close to a place where things are changing daily. And things have been turned on their head in ways that still the people involved with don't entirely understand, I think is handled just well enough. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the war is very much in the background, like physically, you could see explosions from the island on the, on the mainland, um, but they don't hammer it home. They don't really have people talking too much about it, except I think that one conversation with the cop and, and the kind of, uh, you know, he wants to go to the mainland to see the execution there's not too much more made of it. No. So it's left to you to kind of, Oh, okay. You know, the, the bigger war and the smaller individual war, you can sort of see how, how they don't necessarily relate, but there's similarities there. And that, that gets back into the title of the movie, but 
the Banshees of Inisherin, the Harbingers of Doom, the, the people warning of the Doom. And usually that's a female, right? Banshees are actually females. You have the old woman who looks like death, you know, looks like uh, uh, you know, walking death pretty much. And she does give a warning during the movie uh, about some of the doom that is coming up. But it's really interesting, too, how even Siobhan, I think, is trying to avoid being another Banshee because it is the Banshees of Inisherin. Yeah. So I, I don't want to put, you know, read too much into it, but I get this feeling that if she stayed there, she would be another kind of, you know, doom is coming. Things are just going to get worse. And she, you know, she's looking about, she's looking to find a way to get away from that. Both um, Siobhan and Colm are looking at life and saying, I have to change something, you know, because the clock is ticking and I am not getting any younger. And Colm, of course, is much older than Siobhan and is thinking that. But Siobhan is looking at so much more. Like she's looking at the opportunity that she has in the small town. She's looking at the, you know, let's be honest, she's looking at like the options of the men in this town. She's looking at the professional opportunities that she does and doesn't have. She's looking at just basically becoming, you know, a surrogate mother for her brother, um, you know, who, who just can't seem to tend to anything besides his animals. And she's like, I got to do this. You can almost more relate to her angst and her desire to do more than you can with Colm. Cause Colm, it's like, you know, if you looked at it in a certain way, it's almost hubris. It's like, you're trying to be important. You know, you're looking at your mortality. You want to leave a mark. You want somebody to remember you in 50 years. That's take a drink. People, to steal a line from No Country for Old Men, that's vanity. This is somebody saying, I have a chance to do something different and not beating everybody over the head with it, not breaking hearts, not completely throwing the world into chaos. Um, Pedrick actually seems quite well with it when she says, I'm going to go. He's, you know, his, his whole reality has been turned on its head between his sister leaving and his best friend saying, I don't want to be your friend anymore. His stakes in this movie have been just ratcheted all the way up. And yet she finds a way to do it in a much more um, respectful way that he's able to understand. And we feel for her. You know, we feel she has to do this. She can't be, like you said, she can't turn into that old woman giving, you know, the warnings. She can't be that postmistress gossiping with the old bartender and the old cop over what is and isn't news she is somebody who is far smarter and who has far more going for her than any of these people and she needs to get out you know isolation and loneliness are are like two key kind of like themes or aspects of the movie too right and and what you were just saying was set up nicely earlier on the movie when she just kind of i forget at what point but she asked pedrick like don't you ever feel lonely And, and you could tell that she's coming at it from the point of view of like she, she wants different people to talk to, interesting people to talk to, a variety of voices, maybe even a partner of some kind. And he and his response is kind of like, essentially, like, what do you mean? Yeah, <laughs> I've got exactly what I need. I've got my friend, I've got the pub, I've got you, you know, the animals. Why would you need anything more? And what and yet at the same time, good. actually, it's I love the way that you mentioned that you phrase it that way. It's not about her finding a man. You know, it's not about her finding love. It's not about her finding a partner. It's just about her finding more, about her being able to look in the mirror and know that she is capable of more. Um, you know, she's actually she's actually going on. She's offered quite a good job too. 
And I love the way the film handles that. It's a fantastic movie. The, the, I mean, the movie, it, it, it threatens something and then it actually makes good on that threat. And I don't want to get into that too much because of how it plays. I think it's important just to experience what happens full force. But it, like, I think that's what makes this film so good is a lesser film would be about that. It would be, oh my God, we're going to see the movie where the guy does this. And that's not what this movie is about. No, and like you said, it's the nuclear option. But you know, as the movie plays out, you, I think you you kind of get why he goes there. I wouldn't do that. Certainly, you wouldn't do that. But he does that. Colm does that. And given the way they've kind of framed their existence in the characters, it's like, yeah, that that was his option. That's what he had. I've got to do this now, and I've got to get my point across. Well, I think the interesting thing about that too is. So there, there, there's two moments of real visceral violence in the course of this argument. Um, the first one you expect, you know, the first one is making good on a promise. The second one is shocking. And not only is the second one shocking, but the domino effect of what that second one leads to is just fantastic because in any other movie that would just kind of be the end of it or maybe it would just be more of that the fact that that second act of violence makes so much else happen in ways that pay off like every little every checkoff's donkey that trots its way across our screen goes off in the final act (laughs) if you're gonna show a donkey Make sure the donkey goes off. Exactly. We uh, we could be talking about this movie for a long time, um, and it's not. It's actually quite a breezy movie. It's it's a it's a very succinct movie. Um, but we and it end... is very funny too. I mean, yeah. You, you get into some of the quotes because there's a lot of feckin' this, feckin' that, but it's very funny. Not just in the repetitive kind of dialogue, the back and forth, but in some of the statements, the pauses, the, yeah. the situations. We end every matinee cast here um, with um, a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and would, Bob Turnbull, the Banshees of Inishir, and what would be your souvenir? Uh, I was wrestling with this one. I mean, you know, aside from the fact that, man, it's a great reminder that I have to go visit Ireland one of these days because it's, mm-hmm. it's feckin' gorgeous. Um, the Bloody Shears, the, um, I think the biggest thing I'm going to remember or take away from this movie is, is Carrie Condon and mm. her performance uh, and her character you just it, like it, to hang out with her for an afternoon it's just a, a subtlety uh, a very real person and character that i I'd, I'd love to follow further in some ways i don't need a sequel to the movie no but uh, i love the character that much and her performance too yeah my my takeaway i mean my takeaway is actually really really simple i want to sit for an afternoon in jojo's pub oh, uh, yeah. you know it has those lovely tables outside it's, it's situated very nicely on the side of the road overlooking the sea. Uh, it, it's the kind of place that, you know, it looks like it's perpetually damp. <laughs> you know, he he pours a great looking pint. It's a wonderful backdrop for this movie. I'll meet you at the pub 2 p.m. tomorrow. Sounds good. Yeah, 2 p.m. Got to make sure. Um, we rate here on the Matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Bob Turnbull, the Banshees uh, of Inishir. And what are we giving this movie? I'll say 3.5, uh, even uh, a 3.75. Okay. Uh, I'm hesitating on the four just because 
I don't know. I can't even say say why, but I'll, I'll give it a three point seven five. Okay, so, I, I will I will give it a four. This was one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, I was sure. yeah, I was really worried with expectation, um, both in terms of being a fan of Martin McDonough, being a fan of In Bruges, um, you know, knowing that it played well at festivals and what that can do. Um, I was I was kind of going in prepared to be let down, but it does not let me down. It was a wonderful time. It's really smart. Uh, it, it, it is, it is actually far better than it actually has any right to be. That's the thing is that this concept is so simple and it's been done, uh, you know, like two old guys are fighting cause one doesn't like the other it's been done so many times. So the fact that this one was able to come and deliver something refreshing, um, sad and, um, horrific at times is really, really something special. So four stars from me, uh, a high three and a half, 3.7 from Bob. Maybe you hate this movie. Maybe you think that we are being far too kind, or maybe you love it and think it's a modern classic. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I am matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Martin McDonough's Banshees of Inishirin? We are going to take a very short break and come back, flip the record over and play the other side right after this. We are back. It's Matt Nacast 294. Bob Turnbull, the first nine-time guest. I'm Ryan McNeil. We've been talking about Martin McDonough's Banshees of Inishirin. We've been doing this a while, buddy. We've been doing this since 2010. Yeah, well, 294. Episode 294. You're, you're almost at 300. Maybe episode I am. 300 is where we ask you the questions. Maybe that's the celebratory episode right there. I'll take that. I haven't I, I, I haven't had a, a solid idea. I thought I landed on one. So if we want to do that for 300, I, I'm happy to do that for 300. And I'll be the guest, I guess. All right. Um, this is The Other Side. It's the time of the show where we talk about further reading, further viewing. We go a little bit further down the spiral and talk about other stories that one could go on to after The Banshees of Inishirin, um, for better and for worse. Um, I've got two uh, films that I'm choosing. Bob has one. I'm going to get us started uh, kind of break protocol i went back not all that long i went back just a few years um to a modern film if you are the kind of person who watches a film like the banshees of inishirin and you think to yourself this movie is just a little too madcap this movie is just a little too zany a little too lively i want this but i want it drier and i want it slower Boy, have I got the movie for you. I went back a few years to a film from Iceland, and I'm pretty sure, Bob, you have seen this, called Rams. Yes, yes. Good choice, sir. The two gentlemen in that movie are also feuding. In that movie, the two gentlemen are not friends. They are brothers. In that movie, both the men are shepherds in Iceland, and they also happen to be brothers. One of them is Iceland's best shepherd, the other one is Iceland's second best shepherd. And that movie, to double back on what we talked about in the intro for Banshees, when we talked about stakes, that movie comes with spectacularly high stakes for this small town. But how it is approached and how it is 
uh, dealt with and how the communication happens between these two brothers who are at odds, who live next to each other, I should say. There's no going a few miles down the town. Like when you see where Pedro and Colm live, it's actually a little clip away from one another. Like he's not just running over the wall and banging on his door. He's got to get in the cart. He's got to go a little ways. These two shepherds live right next door to each other. That movie is incredible. That movie, it's it, it, the humor in it is like pitch black and real tragedy awaits at the, at the center of that movie. I love uh, Scandinavian films as a general rule. I mean, I shouldn't put them all into one big bucket because obviously there's differences. Icelandic movies, even in a particular specific kind of thing, most of the ones I've seen at TIFF or I, I found, I love their approach to humor. I love the fact that there's always, almost always a dark element to it. But they have these seriously flawed human beings who operate very differently than we do. Um, not just because of their surroundings, just because of their, <laughs> their way of thinking. And I... I I really really enjoy this movie too. As dark as it can get, as much as they do escalate things, um, it's it's a fantastic example of some of the movies coming from that part of the world uh, and how they they view friendship, family relationships. Stoic, uh, stoic. I think is is the is the apt word for a movie like Rams. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the, and the, and its approach to. <laughs> Yeah, you know, familial bonds, and it's not like it's it's not exactly it's got funny moments in it for sure, um, but it's not exactly hilarious. Like there's a moment where one brother has a sheep from the other's flock on his property, and he has to return it. So he basically <laughs> he brings it back next door, lets it loose, pounds on the door, and then starts walking away. And as he's walking away, he just points towards the air <laughs> towards the rogue sheep as hey he's getting away you know like no conversation no hey i found your sheep nothing just bangs on the door there's the sheep i'm out um i, I, th- I think colin would actually like that approach uh you have a movie that you think would go along really well with the banshees of indishirin uh and a movie like rams what do you got uh before i get to that i'm just gonna quickly finish on rams i also like the fact that it isn't also black and white it it, it has you can sort of see different aspects of the sides of each. Why of am I remembering that movie in color? No, sorry. I, I mean, uh, it, it's not. White oh, and oh literally, oh, of, of yeah. metaphorically black and white. Metaphorically. Gotcha. So there's no wrong, <laughs> right or wrong position to take with either of these guys. They both have issues. They both are occasionally right and or wrong. Right. Uh, yeah. It's a, uh, it's a great choice. Gotcha. Thank you for that. My choice is from 1978. Uh, and it's a film called Girlfriends. So I kind of I kind of switched it a bit because I was looking for a movie that showed not necessarily the dissolution of a friendship, but the the change in the friendship. And Girlfriends, I think, really really does a great job. So this is a, a kind of a low budget movie made by Claudia Weil in 1978. I think she's mostly done TV since then. Um, and whose two main actresses weren't really well known. Uh, Melanie Myron is the main character of the movie. Uh, she was in Car Wash briefly, which I just recently saw. Uh, I think she was in Harry and Tonto. And she was most well known for being in 30-something. But in Girlfriends, she absolutely embodies this individual female presence in the late 70s of somebody who's like, not sure what I want. 
I need to figure out how to go and get it. But I've got my buddy right here. Wait a minute. My buddy's changing. My buddy is going down a different path. I feel kind of betrayed. Now I got to figure out all the stuff on my own. Now it does show both of these roommates. So Anne and Susan, I, I think are, are, are roommates. One's a photographer. One is a writer. The writer now wants to get married and they move out to the suburbs and the photographer is like, I, I need to pursue my career. I want to stay downtown. And they're both trying to figure stuff out. It's a fantastic film because again, it's subtle and it creates real characters, real people that you empathize with, but boy, oh boy, are they flawed and they make some, some bad decisions along the way, but it's how they're trying to figure out, do we remain friends? How do we remain friends? Can we remain friends? Can we keep a, a relationship of some kind? And, and how is that going to benefit me and you? And, and it's just really interesting because it's a female-directed film about two females. And I don't want to say it's universal because it is very, very much about female relationships. But I think if you're really looking at how relationships kind of um, happen and change over time, you have to be able to look at that relationship and sort of get an understanding of, yeah, that's that's how humans relate with each other. Uh, it's a I believe I've said before on this show, if not, I'm, I'm certain that I've said it in life, that one of the things they don't teach us, they certainly don't teach it to men. I know they don't teach it to women either, but they certainly don't teach it to men, is how to process a friendship ending. You know, like we are, we see all kinds of movies and books and poems and plays about the end of love. We know what that looks like. We know it hurts. We know how to, you know, work through that. We are not taught how to deal with the end of a friendship, you know, and that is something that I, I love that movies like Girlfriends explore and give us, and you know, not exactly the textbook on how to do this, but they start to give us the notes on how to do this shit because it sucks. You know, I don't care, male, female, gender nonconforming, losing a friend or a friendship ending. It's it really throws you for a bloody loop. You know, we, we see that on display in the Banshees of Anishir and when Patrick just doesn't know what to do with himself if he doesn't go to the bar every day at two. But beyond not having that rhythm, um, it's just not being able to share in the joys, not having that person you can call to help you cope through the pain. Um, you know, it, it, certainly if it's a, um, a relationship where there's like art and inspiration involved the way there is in Girlfriends, um, that is a fantastic movie. Um, thank you for reminding me of that one. I, I saw that one a year or two ago, and you're right; it's really, really good, really underseen um, movie. Yeah, by, and, and um, great performances in a you know a, a low budget kind of late '70s movie. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I love what you're saying there too about about relationships. I mean, relationships evolve, right? They, yeah, they change whether you want them to or not. They're going to, and right? I mean, sometimes they will survive sometimes they will evolve into something else sometimes they're just gonna go and, and there's just nothing you can do to hold on to it and it's not anybody's fault you know it's just time um 
I do also love, by the way, that the boys in that movie have all are all, all just this bunch. It, it's um, along with um, Melanie Mayron and uh, Anita Skinner in that movie. Christopher Guest is in that movie, yep. not playing Christopher Guest. Bob Balaban, uh, Eli Wallach. It's a great movie. I think it's still on the Criterion Channel. It was a while ago. I don't know if it's it was still a while ago. If it isn't, boy, it should be there. It should yeah. be available. It's a, yeah. it's a fantastic spot. Uh, good call. We're going to stay in the 70s for a minute to, to, to round out the other side. Um, mine, I wanted a movie about a small community where not a lot changes, but when things do change, it's absolute chaos. The classic with a capital C by Peter Bogdanovich, The Last Picture Show. I adore this movie. This was a movie that I came to uh, for the first time when I started this site and its predecessor um, as a as a blind spot. Um, Civil Shepherd, uh, Jeff Bridges, um, Cloris Leachman in an incredible performance uh, that'll break your heart about this small Texas town where there's one traffic light and one pool hall and one picture show and not a lot to do. And one generation watches the next generation make the same mistakes they did. They try to warn them about don't do this and don't fall for that and try to get out of here. And they, of course, don't listen because teenagers don't listen. The last picture show is another one of these stories where the stakes are generally speaking low and yet for this town for this community the stakes are actually spectacularly high and it's in this case what really sets things off is both a crisis like a a, a flashpoint crisis and a loss and the town is forever changed by these two things in short order that Anywhere else might just be a bad week, you know, but in the case of this town, it really changes how life is lived because they witness this kind of, you know, um, act by the boys in town. And then in the aftermath of this act, the conscious of this town, Sam the Lion, um, suddenly dies. The town is all of a sudden without its beating heart. It's without its rudder and, you know, the, the kids especially just, they're, they're kind of all scattered to the wind. It's a fantastic film. Uh, like you, I, I came a little late to it. I think I did it for one of my blind spots too, when I was still writing on my, my, uh, my long time, uh, lonely blog that's, that's been sitting there, uh, uh unattended for about seven years. But yeah, I, I came to it late and absolutely loved it. Uh, and I, I've started to catch up with some of Bogdanovich's work, uh, which I've liked a lot more than I expected, although there's still a lot of gaps i got to fill. It looks gorgeous, but it also taps into the isolation and the loneliness of, uh, of Banshees as well. I mean, they're not on an island, but they, no. they could be. It might as well be, yeah. Exactly. Take that little town and throw it out into the middle of the ocean. That's kind of really the same thing. Um, you know, like you said, the stakes, they're, they're setting up the rest of their lives by these, these, these decisions that they're making at this level. So the stakes are really big and, uh, Sybil Shepherd, holy crap, was she great in this movie? Um, everybody is. They all were. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's yeah. one of the best cast performance. Uh, Randy Quaid, I'm forgetting Randy Quaid in well, this movie playing young. this, this little, yeah, stuff. everybody's, oh, they're all so young. They're yeah. so young and dewy in this movie. It's incredible to see them all so young. Um, oh, it's, it's 
the yep. end. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like they all have that new car smell. Um, it's a fantastic movie that just like kind of like what we're saying with the the um, the Banshees of Inisherin. Every single thing that is introduced in the first act will pay off in the third act, and that's the you know that's the thing that good movies do. It, it is a classic, and it was really really high regarded for a long time. I kind of feel like it's getting lost in the shuffle when you hear about like the great seventies movies talked about. You hear about your your exorcists and your jaws and your apocalypse now and your taxi driver. You don't hear people talk about the last picture show all that often. And I think that's really a shame. And they should. Yeah, it's they a should. Film. It's a, it's a great, great choice. Great other side of this. Case. Well, thank you. Uh, and yeah. you had a few others that you wanted to tap on before we go. Yeah. R- random ones that I was again, thinking about, you know, dissolution or changes in relationships. Um, Mikey and Nikki, uh, which I just, Oh Yeah. Saw. On, on Criterion. I, I don't love the movie because I don't like the people in it. And that, that's not necessarily a reason to like her. Elaine May, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and Elaine May is phenomenal as a director, as an actress, as a comedian. But it is really interesting how she <laughs> brings these two longtime friends and really starts ramping up uh, uh, things throughout, throughout this movie. Um, I also was thinking of Old Joy. Uh, um, uh, so the record, yeah, yeah. Again, I I don't necessarily like or or even relate to the characters in this movie, but it's really interesting kind of view of these two friends who are really in different headspaces at this point. Um, but one of the ones that I was I almost settled on was going back to female friendship. Was Ghost World was two very kind of different perspectives of how, you know, at a very young age, these two young women, young girls, really, um, take the rest of their lives. And I thought that would be interesting about Ghost Pro, too. Thank you so much, Bob. That is episode 294 of the Matinee Cast, one week after 293. I'm happy to be back on schedule. Um, speaking of, come on back in two weeks, Monday, November 14th for episode 295. We will be going big and discussing Wakanda forever. Bob, you're not really on the Twitter these days, but if people do want to follow you, where can they find you? It is at the logical mind. Yeah, I, I haven't really been on the old social media that much of late, but uh, I don't think you're yeah, missing much. Days. Yeah, these days I'll, I'll, I'll pop pop back out there. You know, give, me a, give me a reason. I like it. My site is thematinee.ca for more audio content. You can find back episodes there. You can also find them in the old familiar places, Google, Spotify, Podcast, Stitcher Radio, and some newer places, TuneIn Radio, Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when the episodes drop. Feedback on The Banshees of Inishirin can be left or any of the other movies, songs, books, plays. I think we talked about some opera in there somewhere. Uh, a sculpture uh, you can leave them in the comment section of the site you can email ryan at the matinee.ca on twitter i am matinee underscore ca and there's always facebook facebook.com slash dark matinee any final thoughts robert turnbull uh one i, I think as uh siobhan said mozart was actually i believe 18th century so <laughs> yeah well played and, and also uh you know uh thanks for a great second time you know I really think you exploited this loophole in my normal rules. Cheers, man. For Bob, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the feckin' matinee.